Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first deal they built, I bet. No, no. You know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history.
Hello, listeners, and welcome to this episode of the Same Vault Podcast. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and former boss, Steve Wade. Is that any better? Former boss? Is that okay? Uh, okay, I'll live with that. <laughs> Steve, have you got everything battened down? Because we've evidently got a storm headed our way. Yeah, it looks like this uh, Hurricane Florence is really going to devastate the North Carolina coast. Now, how far inland it comes... And how strong it may be when it reaches Charlotte is uh, still up for debate. It's not going to be a hurricane. It may most likely a semi-tropical storm. However, uh, being prepared uh, in Charlotte is no less important than it is down on the coast. And, of course, we've seen that in the grocery stores around here. You can't find any water and you can't find any bread. Everybody's going to make milk sandwiches. There we go. (laughs) Uh, but this is not, you know, it's not the first time that uh, Charlotte has dealt with a hurricane back in 1989. A real hurricane came into Charlotte, Hugo, and it, it uh, really wiped through Charlotte pretty good, especially as, as far as the tree population was concerned. Now, I remember that hurricane very well because the morning after the hurricane came through, uh, in my neighborhood, we were doing all kinds of cleanup. And then we had uh, branches and sticks and trunks and everything piled up out the street. We had no idea how they were going to be moved. Well, here comes this pickup truck down the road toward my house. And it's my neighbor, Ken Schrader. And, hey, that's right. Kenny. That's Kenny right. Schrader. Ken Schrader is my neighbor, and he was going down through the neighborhoods, picking up sticks and taking them out to where they were being you know, piled up for total removal. And uh, finally stopped his truck at my house and came on the porch with me and said, do you think I should be in Martinsville? Because the Martinsville race was that weekend. And I told him, there's no way, Ken. First of all, you couldn't have gotten there in this hurricane. And second of all, I don't see how they could have anything going on. Well, it turned out we had the radio on. And the voice on the radio came out and said, well, qualifying is over here at Martinsville. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Ken jumped up, screamed, and ran back to his house, got in his car, and drove up to Martinsville. So, But it turned out that uh, Martinsville was not affected very much by the hurricane, but nobody could have predicted that. But uh, Ken got there. He finally got into the race. No problem. But it was a shocker for sure. I believe that Florence might impact some travel out to Las Vegas this weekend, but back in 89, you mentioned the direct impact that it had on the race at Martinsville, very well-known story. Dale Earnhardt couldn't get there. And who qualifies on the pole in his car? Jimmy Hensley. How about that? that, Yeah. That's one for the last car lower right there. But that tells you how dangerous getting to Martinsville could be because if Earnhardt can't make it, (laughs) no one can make it. Trust me. Well, Steve, while folks are riding out the storm, Hopefully, they'll enjoy this portion of the interview with Ned Jarrett. And Steve, it's another awesome interview. First thing, off the bat, he talks about the accident that eventually claimed Fireball Roberts' life. And he talks about his decision to get out of the sport and how Fireball's accident didn't really play into that decision. And I'll let him explain why. Also, he talks about a race that he won by 14 laps. 14 laps. So, Ned, take it away. You got caught up in the accident that Fireball Roberts Mm -hmm. had at Charlotte in 1964. Mm -hmm. How hard was that for you to continue racing after that? Well, 
it was tough to a degree because I'd, I'd lost a great friend. We mm-hmm. had, had become good friends. Uh, and we had set out at the motel, Heart of Charlotte Motel, on North Tryon Street on Saturday night, Saturday evening, before that 600-miler in 1964. And he had shared things with me that, that I'd never heard him share, especially about his career and what he wanted to do. And, and he was planning to quit not long after that. His, his, wow. his, he was, had already made retirement plans. He had a job that he was, was going to. He was going to represent uh, Falstaff. And, uh, and it was going to be a good paying situation, which back then I think it was like $50,000 a year. And that was a lot of money, right. back in, more than he could make driving a race car. And, uh, and so he, he was uh, going to quit before that year was, was out. And, uh, and he, he wanted to settle down and, and uh, you know, have a family. And, and those were things that you didn't read or hear that much about Fireball. And so I, I only say that to make the point that we'd, we had become friends and, and that he shared things with me. And uh, then to have it happen uh, that we'd be in the same accident, uh, nobody's fault. It, it was definitely one of those racing deals that, that can happen. Uh, Junior Johnson and I were battling for fifth or sixth place somewhere in that area. Uh and I was on the outside, Junior was on the inside, and there was a pretty good bump going into turn one at Charlotte. And either when when Junior hit the bump, he momentarily, his car momentarily jumped on him, went out of control, a little bit out of control. And anyway, it, it hit me, or it could have been a combination of that and the air turbulence, which we didn't know a whole lot about back then, but, but still we knew it was there. But anyway... Uh, we got together and our car spun. I spun to the inside of the track. Junior spun to the outside of the track. And uh, I hit the inside retaining wall backwards. And we were using conventional metal gas tanks back then. And when when I hit the wall on the inside, it uh, burst the fuel cell open, or the gas tank open. And as I skidded down the wall, it created sparks and caught it on fire. And then Fireball, don't he lost control of his car, either trying to maneuver around us or through us or my guess is that he probably slowed down somebody hit him from the back and spun him out but anyway he spun to the inside of the track too and spun uh, he hit the inside retaining wall he hit me and we both slid down the wall and both of our cars were on fire and uh, the luck that i had the good luck that i had was that that uh, my car remained upright all the yeah. way through this. His hit the, there was an opening in the wall about halfway down the backstretch where they allowed traffic to go across the track to the infield. And they did not have a rail or anything. It was just open-end walls there. And wow. uh, and so he hit the embutment in the wall. And when he did, it totally ripped out the retaining rear firewall in his car and uh, and turned the car on its roof. And uh, we the cars landed about 30 feet apart. And I got out of my car and started to sit down on the wall, and I looked over, and Fireball was starting to come out of his car. And so I ran over and grabbed hold of him, pulled him out of the car, and he and I stood there together on the racetrack and, and uh, ripped his uniform off his body. Uh, he was one of the first drivers that I saw have a tailor-made uniform. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was envious of it, really, because it really looked sharp. But 
I don't remember if it was that year or somewhere in that period of time that NASCAR started requiring any clothing that we were going to wear on race day that we had to bring to the track on Friday and they would dip it in a solution of boric acid and other ingredients which would flame proof it. Yeah. And uh, we hang it up on the fence and to dry, and it looked terrible, but, but it would flame. <laughs> yeah. but you could stick a blowtorch to it, and it, it would not catch it on fire. But Fireball was allergic to that solution. And so he had a letter from a doctor stating that, and so NASCAR allowed him to run without dipping his uniform <laughs> in there. And uh, mm. his uniform was uh, tailor-made. It had zippers on the sleeves and zippers up the legs and zippers on the sides and all of that. Good-looking, but hard to get off. And yeah. when it's burning and you're in a hurry. Uh, but we we were working on it, had it pretty well torn off till the medics got there, which was only a minute or so yeah. before they got there. They got there very quickly. But but And I got some burns in trying to, to help him. But uh, And as, as you've probably seen it uh, in print somewhere that he said, oh, my God, Ned, help me. I'm on fire. And uh, as I was pulling him out of the car, he was not physically injured. Of course, they took him to the hospital, and he lived for about six weeks. He uh, contracted blood poisoning and mm-hmm. pneumonia, and they didn't have the technology back then. If if they knew, had known then what they know now about treating situations of that sort, I mean, it it had been okay, but uh, it, it just wasn't there at that time. And uh, so, unfortunately, we lost him. And, and it, you know, there's two ways to look at a situation like that. One is, yeah, man, this can happen. And, uh, you know, I don't want it to happen to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you might get scared. And another way to look at it, man, if I can go through that, I can go through just about anything. So you, then you're not afraid to get back in the race car. So that's the way that you have to, if you're going to continue on, that's the way that you have to look at it. A lot of people thought that that's the reason I retired two years later. Uh, if, if that was going to cause me to retire, I would have done it then. Not yeah. not two years later, uh, because we went on and won a championship after that. So uh, it uh, certainly there was always concern about safety, uh, and NASCAR was doing as good as they knew how to do to build the cars back then. But uh, uh, the technology was just not there, and and so uh, you just uh, have to suck it up and and go on really and believe that that. Uh, uh, it's going to be okay for you. Now, you were married to Martha at the time. Yes, I was. What was her reaction? Martha was uh, very concerned. She was concerned, period, even mm-hmm. when I was only, especially on the big tracks, and because we had lost some other guys that year. You know, 1964 yeah. was a bad year. Uh, Billy Wade and Jimmy Perdue and uh, Joe Weatherly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was uh, certainly preying on her mind. Yeah. And uh, she would score sometimes at uh, some of the events that would help her to take the mind, her mind off of it uh, but uh, uh, it was tough on her I didn't know how tough it really was I would would joke with people yeah. in front of her that they were well uh, it, this was after Dale started racing and they'd ask <laughs> how tough it was on her and and I'd say well uh, you know, it was a whole lot tougher on her when Dale was out there driving than when I was because you can replace husbands. You can't replace those sons, <laughs> yeah. uh, which was, uh, I'm not sure that was a good way to put it, but but uh, uh, it, uh, I was trying to ease her mind. And, and I think it was tougher on her when Dale was out there than, even than, than when I was. But it, but she never, never put her foot down and said, hey, you're going to quit this. Uh, never, never said a word about it. She 
I was driving race cars when we got married uh, on short tracks. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she she accepted that and, uh, and knew a little bit about what she was getting. Not totally, yeah. because Daytona wasn't built yet then. <laughs> and Charlotte hadn't been built yet. And uh, Atlanta. And so she kept it to herself, her feelings to herself, and, and just let me do my thing. Probably your most well-known victory was the 1965 Southern 500. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you won that race by 14 laps <laughs> over Buck Baker. And with less than 50 laps to go, Fred Lorenzen and Daryl Derringer were fighting for the lead, and they were a pretty good distance ahead of you. Mm-hmm. But then both of them dropped out of the race just like that with engine trouble. I had pretty well run up front most of the race. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I had led some earlier in in the race. Uh, but uh, my car had started overheating with about 100 miles to go, and so I had to start nursing it just to finish because I was in a in a tremendous battle with Dick Hutcherson trying to win the championship. And the points back then were based on the amount of prize money that you'd win, and the big races like Darlington, uh, they paid a lot more points. And so I'd, I wanted to, to uh, have a good finish, and Hutcherson had gotten involved in an accident earlier in the race. And so I knew if I could get a top five finish out of it that day, that that uh, is going to capitulate me into to the championship, basically, uh, mm-hmm. not not win it, but but it would put me in a great position to to go and win it that year. And uh, so uh, I had slowed down, plus the fact that I'd made an extra pit stop and had had got a, a, a lap or two down. Uh, but still had plenty of cushion, but that was just a preventative type situation uh, to to try to stay in the race. And then, bless gosh, all of a sudden, uh, Lorenzen's car, his had been overheating. We knew that, and it finally blew up. And uh, Derringer uh, started having a problem with the rear gearing on his car. It uh, was smoking, the rear end was smoking, and incidentally, that was a gear that I had loaned him. Had there loaned, you go. Had loaned Bud Moore <laughs> in the for the race and uh that was the so, right gear to loan him yep, evidently and then it uh <laughs> it it finally went out on him but uh uh it was a brand new gear now a lot of times when people talk about the competition today versus competition in your mm-hmm. day and age a lot of people say well if you think competition isn't that great today well ned jarrett won a race by 14 laps yeah. one time how do you respond to that? I say, man, that had to be a boring race, didn't it? Can you imagine <laughs> sitting there, sitting up in the grandstands at 100-degree weather and, and watching those cars? The only thing I think that, that kept their interest uh, was I I thought of something in the last uh, 75 or so miles of that race that, hey, if you cut that the switch off going down the straightaway when it's about time to back off to go into the turn, cut the switch off, hold the accelerator, to the floorboard, let that raw gasoline run in there that it would cool the engine. And it did. And I did that for for the last at least 50 laps. And uh, So you were cutting the engine I off? I cut the engine off and let the raw gasoline hold the accelerator wide open. Let the, let the uh, it was slowing down, you see, as a result of the engine not running. Yeah. And uh, I'd use the brakes a little bit too. But anyway, uh, that raw gasoline run in there and it had a tremendous cooling effect on it but every time i cut the switch back on it would backfire and so that kept the fans awake <laughs> and maybe kept some of them there you, you were a busy guy in that car that day well yeah you had to had to, had to be thinking there again we didn't have two-way radios and yeah. the crew was out there with the signboard all the ford officials had come down to our pits 
uh, Lorenzen was gone and, <laughs> and whoever else, Junior Johnson, had fallen out early. And uh, there was about half a dozen Ford cars, and all of them had had that same problem, overheating. And uh, so they'd all come down to my pits, and they knew I had a big lead. And they were telling bring him in here and cool it off. And uh, the crew put up a sign, pit. And I knew I didn't have to pit for tires or gas. And so I, a power greater than Ford Motor Company, the officials of Ford Motor Company, told me to stay out there and keep running and doing what I was doing. And, and I did. And I, I always <laughs> felt that that power was God, not, uh, not <laughs> anybody on earth that was leading me through that situation. <laughs> you won 13 races right. that year. What was the difference? I mean, did you have more backing? Did you have more confidence? Was it more important to win the championship then? What was the factor in winning 13 races that year as opposed to the one that you won for your first championship? Well, first of all, we were there was a difference in the backing, mm-hmm. no no question. We had a little help from Chevrolet in 61, but it was not nearly enough to, to run uh, in an absolute first-class manner. But uh, it did let us run. And yeah. uh, then when Ford came back into racing in 1963 and said they were going to sponsor four teams, I was fortunate to be one of those four that they chose. And so I switched back to Ford. And uh, and we won, I think, eight races then in 63, our first year. And then I got the, the call, uh, really from Holman and Moody, that there was an opportunity to move to Camden, South Carolina, and become the team manager for Bondi Long and be the driver. And uh, that was a real godsend for me. It was a, uh, he had a good race team, but had no stability or management. And, uh, and Bondi will tell you yourself that he, he didn't want to manage it. Uh, all he wanted to do is work on the race car and see the thing run. And uh, so anyway, in 64 is when we moved there. And we won 15 races that year. Mm-hmm. Should have won the championship, but we we ran into a series of uh, of blown engines in uh, the midsummer, really, of '64. And uh, Holman Moody were building our engines, and and I got pretty upset about it. We went on the northern trip where we'd run about seven races or something in a two week period, and uh, and I was leading every one of those races, and and the engine blew in like four of them. Hmm. And uh, that so that cost us the championship that year. And so I called back and talked to John Holman and uh, uh, about what was going on. And and uh, he said, "Well, I said we didn't really expect a whole lot out of them. Said so that was just some stuff here that we had that we did didn't uh, wasn't going to use." And boy, did I hit the ceiling! And oh I wow! I just hung up on him right then after cussing him out pretty good. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and I called Ford Motor Company right then and yeah. uh, and told them what was going on there and uh so things changed after that uh, as far as the engines were concerned and uh it's too bad that it came to that point but i always felt that that cost us the championship that year so so to answer your question originally yes we had better equipment and better uh, race cars more money to work with and because uh, what ford motor company didn't supply for us uh, the dupont family did in the way of of money, we're able to hire more people. When '61, when I won the championship, we had two full-time employees and myself working on the race car. We had a lot of volunteer help. Yeah. But when we were down at Bondi Longs when we won the championship in 1965, we had uh, seven full-time employees, which you know that was big back then. <laughs> seven. Not many people had that many, <laughs> and I didn't have to work on the race cars then myself. Chad Knauss, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, 
Uh, although, now, see, we still were not building the engines, but right. we did earn the right after I uh, got on to Holman and Ford Motor Company. Uh, we earned the right to go through those engines if we chose to do that. And, okay. and so we, we had a man uh, the name of Kenny Miller that, that did that. And so we would go through all of those engines unless they were brand new to start with. You won the Grand National Championship in 65. But the following year, you cut back to running about half the races. Yeah. And then you left the cockpit. We went into the 1966 season to try to win the championship again. And uh, I think even before the season started, Ford had submitted some engines to NASCAR that they wanted to run or engine concepts that they wanted to run. And NASCAR wouldn't do it. And they kept battling with them. And finally... In the first part of April, uh, they Ford pulled out. Said we aren't, wow. aren't. Uh, they kept threatening to do yeah. that, and I was leading the points again. <laughs> I hadn't won yet <laughs> that year. Yeah. But uh, Richard Petty and I were at Darlington testing tires, and uh, there was a little a payphone down at the end of the garage, the little open air garage that was at Darlington then, and I was called to that payphone. I said, "How in the world? First of all, did anybody know it was here?" <laughs> And then to call yeah. on this payphone, yeah. <laughs> but Ford Motor Company, they'd found out through Holman and Moody, they had that number because they'd use it calling back and forth during race week. But anyway, they called me down to the phone, and this, this was on a Wednesday, and we were scheduled to race at Columbia, South Carolina on Thursday night. And the rules were then that if you were going to withdraw from a race, that you had to do it 24 hours before uh, the race. And they said, we want you to send a telegram now to... Uh, Columbia Speedway or NASCAR and withdraw from that race. We're pulling our support. I, I knew that it was in the works, but I, just deep down, I didn't think it was going to happen, but it did. But it was just a devastating blow to me. Don't remember how long they sat out. It was most of the year. They came back in before the season was finished. But I had already left Bondale. I'd made my mind up that if the sport didn't offer any more security than that, and I was with the, with the best security situation that you could have, I was uh, one of a very few, if not one of the only, person that was being paid a salary to manage the team and got my regular 40% for driving. But still, the long-range security, was the rug was just pulled right off under my feet. I was 34 at the time and didn't know how long we could continue to, to do it and still be effective. And I vowed that however far up that ladder I got, I'd quit while I was there. I would never go down the other side. And I, to this day, I'm the only person to ever retired while they were still the reigning champion. I wanted to spend more time with the kids. Dale was nine years old. Glenn was 15. Our daughter, Patty, was six. And uh, they were doing things in school and that, that I wanted to be a part of, and I couldn't be. Uh, with the schedule that I had uh, in racing. And so that was probably my biggest reason for, for getting out of it. And, and the other things, the lack of security and everything, was, was uh, just put me over the top. Now, surely, at some point in 67, 68, somewhere along in there, surely other teams called you and said, you know, we've, our driver's hurt, won't you come fill in? And you never did that. No, I... I didn't really get a lot of phone calls because I made it pretty clear that I was really? that I was quitting. And this was it, okay. and uh, I did get some calls saying, in fact, from Ford, and saying, "Now, if you decide you want to come back, we'll we'll have a place for you." And uh, 
uh, and I chose not to do that. But I, I wanted to. I, it was tough. It was very, very tough to not. I just wanted to, to be racing and be a part of it. But Humpy Wheeler probably had more to do with me not going back than, than anybody else. He, he talked to me about it and said, said you, you went out in style. You were the, you were the champion. And uh, you went out with respect. And uh, he said, uh, not often do you see whether it's uh, an actor or an athlete in another sport or whatever it is, not often do you see them come back and succeed right. and, or do better than they did before. And, uh, and he, he said, you've got something that you can live with there the rest of your life. And I've always appreciated that. It, it was right. Although uh, I still, at my age, I, I felt that, that I could, uh, could still go on and uh, win races and maybe win some championships. And, and I've wished a lot of times I, I would have checked that out. And especially, you know, I, I guess that has come to mind more now that the Hall of Fame, uh, although I'm in 13 or 14 Hall of Fames, but this NASCAR Hall of Fame is, is special. And uh, uh, when you start comparing your record to others, then that's when you, hey, man, if I'd have gone on, when, when I chose to retire, Richard Petty and I had started he started about six months before I did in Grand National. Now, yeah. he, he went straight into Grand National because I had the six and a half years of experience in the Sportsman Series before I went in. Yeah. But uh, uh, he, he started in in latter part of 58 and got pretty serious about it in uh, early part of 59. And I didn't really, until I bought that car with that bad check in the latter <laughs> part of 1959, yeah. that's when I really started getting serious about it and, and running a lot. And at that time, I had won two championships. I don't mean this in boasting at all or not to belittle Richard Petty's career exactly. because I have the ultimate respect for the man and, and for the career and what he has accomplished. Uh, but uh, at that particular time, he had won 43 races, I think it was, and I had won 50. And I'd won two championships, and he had won one. And so who knows if you go on, of course, I'm five years older than Richard, so I couldn't have gone on as far as he did, uh, but uh, I could have gone on maybe uh, as far as he did when he was still winning races and winning championships. Steve, I've got to be honest, when I sat across the table from Ned and heard him recounting the accident that eventually took Fireball Roberts' life, it was one of the most eye-opening experiences of my career because he was directly involved in that. And the thing that I kind of wanted to touch on was how he insisted that Fireball's accident had nothing to do with his decision to retire. He was of the opinion that he had the job to do and he was going to go out to do it. And he had to put that kind of thing out of his mind. Steve, what is it about a race car driver that allows them to do that? Even though they've seen bad accidents, they've been through bad accidents, but they still get in that race car and race. You know, it's part of their character. I think it's part of how they are or put together. They go out and they race and they love to race and they love the competition and they realize what can happen during the course of the race. It's always there. It's real. It's not imaginary. It's something that can happen to each and every one of them. And still, they persist on going out and doing the job they love. Now, Rick, there's a lot of professions, as you well know, that have this same type of, shall we say, characteristic 
danger, death, is part of the job. You know all about NASA and astronauts. They know that their job is perilous, yet they do it anyway because of the way they're made up, of their character. So I'm not really surprised that Ned and several, every other driver for that matter, uh, went on to continue to compete uh, because I know this sounds corny and cliches, but it comes with the territory. And if you're not willing to deal with it, then you're not going to be able to race. Steve, what did you think about Ned talking about the meeting that he had with Fireball the night before the race or the weekend of the race where Fireball said that he was going to retire? Because at that time, that wasn't really an ordinary thing. That didn't happen all the time because at that time and for a long time afterwards, the trend was that drivers stayed in that race car until they were 40, 50. Or right. so. Yeah, it was. Well, it was a, that was a uh, unusual thing. Because I want you to think back. I know for a fact that back in the 60s and early 70s, how many NASCAR drivers were represented, became representatives of any product? In fact, how many of them even did a commercial back then? Uh, that very was, few. Yeah, yeah, very few. That was not regional. You know, nothing national uh, was offered to any of these guys to get a job as a representative for a major beer company. And take it from there, it was not the kind of thing that most drivers were offered. So Fireball realized that he had some job security ahead of him. He didn't have to go out and risk his life. Unfortunately, he did so. But he didn't have to go out and risk his life with an opportunity like this coming along. I think that's one of the reasons he took it. And Ned took basically the same approach a couple of years later when Ford backed out of the sport. And I loved what he said because he said... I had a family to support, and if I wasn't going to get any more job security than what I was getting, he had just won the championship the year before. That's a very good point, Ned makes, because you don't matter how well a driver does in this sport, very rarely do they have the kind of job security we're all used to, okay? This is the time before multi-year contracts. This is the time before major sponsorship. And it still happens today. I mean, it doesn't matter how good you are, you can your career can be cast in doubt. Ask Martin Truex Jr. I mean, I know he's got a ride for next year and everything, but there was a period of time everything he worked with and worked for went away. And that's that's sad, but it does happen. So when a driver, again, I repeat, when a driver has the opportunity to stand squarely on his own two feet with job security, he sometimes he has to take it and uh I think that's exactly what happened to Ned. And fortunately for Ned, it obviously worked out for him because he went on to a career as a representative of Anheuser-Busch at the racetrack. And also, most everybody knows of his career as a NASCAR broadcaster. And I'm just going to go back in time for just a second. And when I first got into this sport, the ESPN booth was made up of Bob Jenkins as the lead guy, color commentary by Ned Jarrett, and Benny Parsons. And Steve, if there has ever been a better broadcast booth television-wise, I I would challenge somebody to tell me who it was because that was the soundtrack of my early NASCAR career. Well, you're not alone in that opinion. Of course, fans, I don't want to say they're fickle, but but they have their favorites, and that includes the booth as well as the track. And over the years, we've seen a lot of guys uh, do some work in the television booth and a lot of them uh, to this day are doing very well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, broadcasting races. 
one other thing that I wanted to mention about Ned's interview was the 1965 Southern 500 that he won by not 10 laps, not 12 laps, but 14 laps. Yes. He won that thing by 14 laps, Steve. And some fans think today's race is boring. <laughs> and that is exactly my point. Yeah. When people today make the comment, the racing isn't like it used to be. Oh, that's a pretty doggone good I, thing I if you ask argued, me. I have argued and argued this point. Some fans say the, bet, the racing was better yesterday. Well, in some respects, I do agree with them. But it was not always better. There were some times where you just absolutely went to sleep. Kill Yarbrough won Bristol by seven laps one time. I think he led every lap at one or two, something like that. If that had happened, if that happened today, which oh, I there, oh, the, the sky would fall down. I, absolutely, and so always remember the bygone days are just that. They are by and they are gone. Now there were good times then, and there were bad times then. We've just talked about unfortunate accidents and things like that, and we've talked about boring races. They existed back then. Today, I think the overall competition is much better, and certainly the safety is much better for the drivers. So don't be so quick to say the bygone years were better. I liked them as much as every other fan. I was back there, I know. But I also know that it wasn't all good. You hit the nail right on the head with that comment because in this race, the 1965 Southern 500, it was marred by a fatal accident involving Buren Skeen. He lost his life in that race. And also, that was the race where Kale Yarbrough went over the fence and wound up in the parking lot between right. turns one and two. That's right. There's a great film of Kale leaving the track at Darlington. I've seen that. The story goes that by the time the safety crews or other people got there to rescue him. He's already sitting in the hood of his car. So, so apparently it wasn't all that bad. <laughs> Steve, you made the comment a second ago about fans thinking that yesterday's racing was so much better. I would contend that when the sport was at its height of popularity, that we didn't have fans necessarily of the competition on the racetrack but we had fans of the particular drivers because when you think about who was on the racetrack back in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, you had Darrell Waltrip, you had Dale Earnhardt, you had Mark Martin, you had Davey Allison, you had Bobby Allison, you had Kel Yarbrough, you had David Pearson. And so I think that it wasn't necessarily the competition on the racetrack that they were drawn to, it was the personalities. You bring up an excellent point, and this is the one point that I will agree with most fans. Today's drivers, they have their personalities. Let's not make any mistake about that. But yesterday's drivers, uh, they got to show their personalities a little bit more. Why? Because they were able to show those personalities more than they have been in most recent years. NASCAR, I think, clamped down on the drivers when they went to television nationally. And I think they uh, enforce their behavior a bit, certainly did their language and everything of that nature because of the fact they were on television. That made many drivers look like clones to fans. I think NASCAR and sponsors clamped down. Uh, you're right. Yeah. yeah, you're right about that. That was not the case in the past because in the past, NASCAR had no reason 
to clamp down on these guys. They they were not getting big money from television, they were, and it wasn't getting big money from sponsors. So these guys were more open, and that certainly was the case. I'm going to bring this up again. That certainly was the case with the media. We had total access to the drivers, the teams, the crew chiefs, whatever you want to mention, do. And those people responded favorably to us because they had stories to tell. And number two, they had nowhere else to tell those stories. There wasn't national television. There was the media, the print media and the radio media and, and some local television and every now and then cable television. But that was the outlet they had. So the relationship with the media was a lot more, and I hate to use the word intimate, but that's what it was, than it is now. And so I think that does translate into some fans thinking that they don't really get to see the personalities of the drivers of today like they did yesterday. I think it's a two-way street. Fans and media complain that the drivers have become clones, but you got to consider it from the driver's side as well because Anytime you step foot outside of your motor coach, you've got cameras, you've got cell phone video, you're constantly under the glare of the spotlight. Even if it's just a second slip up, you know, Danica Patrick cussing at a fan or, you know, last year or whatever it was. And, you know, the incident with Kyle Busch after the race at Bristol. Well, I'll just say it, the idiot at Martinsville last year trying to go after Denny Hamlin on pit road. These drivers, they have to have a shell if they want to keep their job. You're exactly right. And this goes to a point I've made before. Technology has changed NASCAR, both on the track and off the track. And I agree wholeheartedly that these drivers have more demands of their time today than they ever did in days gone by. I'll never forget it. I once interviewed a Bush Series champion the day after he clinched the championship at Homestead. He happened to be running the cup race the day after he clinched the championship. (laughs) I don't know what this brother ate. (laughs) (laughs) But let's just say that the flatulence was, was thick. In that room. You could have cut it with a knife. My eyes were watering, Steve. (laughs) And the point that I'm making with that, if that had happened today, the second the rider walked out of that trailer, that would have been on Twitter. Sure. Sure. Exactly. That It would have been X driver just farted all the (laughs) way through our interview. That is exactly right. And it goes back to the point of technology again. Social media to me is part of technology. Oh, it's lovely. We all love it. Instant news, instant opinions, uh, uh, political debates, racing debates. It's all right there in cyberspace. Well, you got to stop and think sometimes that perhaps a driver knowing all this isn't going to tell you everything he knows. Isn't going to act the way you want him to act. And uh, I think he's got good reason. Steve, we're recording this on Wednesday, September the 12th. And yesterday was the 17th anniversary of 9-11. There is no way to put into words what that day was like for me and you and so many other people here in the United States. That year in general was very tough in the world of NASCAR, obviously with everything that had happened with Dale Earnhardt and the the controversies that followed that. And then to have 9-11 happen was just, there's no way to describe what that was like. There really isn't. As memory serves, 
teams were out in Kansas, and they were testing for the anticipated first race out there. That's when it actually happened. Most of the teams came home after that, not all, but most of them. And the question was, what was going to happen in New Hampshire the next week? At first, NASCAR indicated, oh, we've got to go on. We've got to go and continue racing. And I think the teams were told to show up on Friday. 4,000 campers were already at New Hampshire. Uh, but common sense prevailed, and NASCAR postponed the race. New Hampshire was rescheduled to after Thanksgiving. So that meant the next race was Dover. When we traveled on the weekends, typically we had the next Tuesday off. And I I held to that fairly firmly because, you know, being on the road as much as we were, you know, it was nice to have that time at home. I had gone to Richmond the weekend before and was at home. You know, I, I just remember sitting there the rest of that day and just watching everything that came in because the first plane hit, then, you know, everybody turned on their TV and saw the second plane hit. Steve, where were you? Oh, gosh, I'll never forget it either. My wife and I were on our way to San Antonio for a vacation, and we were landing in Dallas and expecting to catch another flight onto San Antonio, the airplane. And when we landed in Dallas, anticipating catching another plane to San Antonio, our plane never went to the gate. It kept rolling and taxiing and rolling and taxiing. It was far end of the airport. And that's when the pilot came on the air and told us there had been a national emergency. We didn't know, wow. what, it, we didn't know what it yeah. was, you know, but eventually we found out. So he said, I'm going to go to the gate when we get one open. And if you have any connecting flights, forget it. You're not going anywhere. So he taxied to the gate, got out. That airport was almost vacant completely vacant. I'd never seen anything in my life. I thought it was a twilight zone. But I managed to catch a cab and managed to get a hotel room. So we were in the hotel room, my wife and I, when we're watching everything that's happening or had happened on television. And we were stranded. We thought, well, okay, maybe we can drive to San Antonio. No, I decided not to do that. So I negotiated buying a used Toyota from a nearby dealership and driving it back to Charlotte. And before I bought it, I called Rick Hendrick. And I said, if I come into Charlotte with this car, will you buy it back from me? He said, sure. Before I got a chance to buy the car, my travel agent called up and said, don't buy the car. I've got your rental car over at Enterprise. They've only got three of them. Go over there and get one. So I got it. It was a Chevrolet. I drove all the way back to Charlotte from Dallas, Texas. And that's how I spent 9-11. The rest of that week happened. And there was people who said NASCAR was just waiting on the NFL and the MLB to make their decisions before they made. I, I, I don't know. Don't care. I don't that, even... that truly was not important. You know, I, I just know that nobody wanted to go to New Hampshire. And we all went to Dover. Now, I maintain that uh, our government, was taking note of everything that was going on to see how the people responded to 9-11. They wanted us to go on with our lives. They wanted us to pursue whatever we do and keep it all straight. Don't, don't back off, because if you do that, the enemy wins. Well, it turns out that that particular weekend, amidst all the sporting events that were going on, the largest single-attended event would be at Dover. 
And I want to tell you, the fans, NASCAR and Dover and the drivers all responded remarkably. The place was packed. American flags were everywhere. Larry Gatlin, I believe, sang God Bless the USA. That brought a tear to a lot of eyes. And there was just a whole more activity and electricity at that racetrack than I had seen in a long, long time. And here's the kicker. Dale Earnhardt Jr. won that race. And there is that iconic picture of him holding an American flag in his car, you know, running around the track with the American flag and not the checkered flag. And that, that's become an iconic view in NASCAR. So NASCAR and its fans and its competitors responded so well to me to 9-11 that it began and continued the healing process from that terrible event. I agree. I was in Dover that weekend as well. But I will be honest, it was strange to be in that kind of crowd of people because that kind of crowd of people was obviously a target. And I remember very, very vividly sitting outside the media center as bomb technicians yeah. went through the press box. Absolutely. And uh, that went on for quite a long yeah, time yeah. afterwards. Yeah. That sort of thing. I can remember watching the helicopter that carried the overhead camera during the race, and I didn't know who it was. And I was like, are they going to suddenly come into the crowd? I remember watching the planes take off from Dover and go over the racetrack. And every time one flew over, I was like, is something else happening? Right. You know, and it took a while to get over that nervousness. Yeah. It really did. I believe so. I believe so. I guarantee you, you weren't the only one having those thoughts when the helicopter came by or when the jet flew overhead. People got to, you know, people had to think to themselves, uh, what is that? Oh, gosh. You know, but in the long run, and I, I can remember this very vividly. And in the long run, and I can remember this very vividly, people cared nothing but the racing and what was going on in the track. And uh, that is the way it should have been. Steve, the other very vivid memory that I have of that entire episode was in 1996, I'd had the chance to spend the day at a New York City fire department station with former Hendrick Motorsports volunteer crewman, weekend warrior, Scotty Maxwell. And that <laughs> those guys are hardcore. The thing that I took away from that day was just how closely related they were to NASCAR crewmen because when they felt the need to bust each other's chops, they busted each other's chops, you know. I remember one of the other firemen asking Scott, when Ken Schrader, the crew that he worked on, had last won a race. And Scott said, well, it was back in 1991. You mean it's been five bleeping years, blah, 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 you know. <laughs> and so, you know, I came away with just an absolutely newfound respect for what those kinds of emergency services did. That was in 1996. Fast forward to the day after 9-11. As soon as I got into the office there in Charlotte, I started calling Scott, and Steve, I couldn't get him. Hmm. I knew that he was still with the fire department, so I knew that chances were he had responded. And I called him, and I called him, and I called him, and I called him. And finally, late that afternoon, got in touch with him. And Steve, I've never been so relieved to hear somebody's voice because yeah, Scotty and I had yeah. remained friends and, and that kind sure. of thing. So it was nice to hear his voice, but 
at the same time, kind of heartbreaking mm. to hear what he had just been through. And I did not know him at the time, but Al Nelson, who was the transport driver for one of the Bush Series teams that I covered, he actually lost a brother in the World Trade Center. His brother was a New York City fireman who lost his life. Peter Nelson lost his life in the Trade Center. The bottom line is the fact that just so many lives were impacted. And I'm proud that NASCAR was at least part of the response and helping get things back to at least some sense of normalcy. This may sound corny to some, but, you know, to me, after 9-11, what transpired in NASCAR uh, probably was one of NASCAR's finest moments. I agree. All those paint schemes on all those cars. Ken Schrader's car, I don't remember Ken Schrader's car having a single sponsor decal on it. It was just completely an American flag. Right. And I don't think that I've ever been so proud of this country as I was in the maybe six months Mm -hmm. after 9-11 because at that point, didn't matter if you were Democrat, didn't matter if you were Republican, didn't matter if you were liberal, conservative, didn't matter if you were black, white, Hispanic, didn't matter. We were all Americans. Exactly right. And look at each sport in the month after 9-11. Look at the enthusiasm of the crowds. Look at the uh, additional pomp and circumstances that those sports put on in honor of America. I don't think you're going to find a finer stretch of time for all of sports. And in the end, sports was a big part of the healing in this country. Listeners, I would like to remind you about iTunes. Leave a five-star review and a written review. Once we get to 50, I'll give away a copy of every one of my NASCAR-related books. We continue to get ratings on iTunes, and I I truly do appreciate that. On Patreon, patreon.com slash the Scene Vault Podcast. And on PayPal, the address there is paypal.me slash the Scene Vault Podcast. As always, Peter Slano and the team at Centaur Media, thank you. And to my best friend, Joey Stepp, and his band, Frantic Radio Beings, I appreciate the theme music. Steve, say goodbye to our listeners for us. Well, goodbye, listeners, and thank you for listening. It's been fun. And folks, stay safe in this storm. <laughs>